When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abeljabar. Yep. Um, what's going on, sir? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Um, I'm looking right now at the Abu Azrael action figure uh, that you sent me, <laughs> and I think I want one. Yep, we should get one for the show. Just put it in the background. I know we that your should- wall of stuff is growing, so... <laughs> my wall of stuff is growing. As you can see, I have a, a portrait of a dog that my mom got me. Um, if you guys are watching. So like half the, half the podcast probably go up on YouTube. Um, the other half are just on audio exclusively. But um, if you guys are watching or listening, you got to see this super sweet picture of this dog. I have in my background. It's pretty beautiful. Also new hookup. I got the uh, house Zamoda. Nice. House Zamoda is uh is uh my my house colors. It's uh the exact same as the Lannister colors. It's the, it's the actual it's the Lannister sigil uh, sigil 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 from Game of Thrones, and it looks pretty sweet. If you ask me, I don't think Abdeljabar would fit on a pillow, but maybe I'll give it a shot. I don't think you get a house, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Sir Davos, right? I got to like get a couple of my fingers chopped off first. And Do you, do you, you get a house when you're from Essos? Um, sure. Yeah. House Tyrosh um, is one of the, the larger ones that uh, the Targaryens fled to when, uh, when Robert took over the, uh, uh, the throne. So where would you, where would you be from in Essos? Would you be, uh, <laughs> would you be, Dor- maybe you would just be Dornish. Yeah, I, I think I'd probably be Dornish or like Dothraki or or even Bravosi. I think I, I might be Bravosi. Yeah, you'd be something exotic or maybe Valenti from Valenti. But I think I would be firmly like a Westerosi, right? I'd probably be living in Dorne, frankly, because in Dorne they have a lot of like uh, trade with the um, with the free cities, right? So you know, I'd be like a mix of Dornish and and you know Bravosi or some shit but living in Dorne because that's basically my, my story here. <laughs> I'd probably be, yeah, I could definitely see that. I think I would be a, uh, my girlfriend said that I would just be a, uh, a night's watchman. That's all she said. <laughs> no, I could totally see you being from the Westerlands, you know, where, where, uh, where the Lannisters are from. I don't know about being a, a noble person, but you'd definitely be from the Westerlands. I think. 
Or the I'd be House Cle- I'd be Cleagon. House Clegane. House Clegane. <laughs> Clegane, I sentence you to die. Um, all right, guys. Um, I'm not sure if you guys like the book Game of Thrones chatter because we have a new tool that actually shows a drop off on the podcast. I think last time we talked about Game of Thrones, there was like an immediate drop off from the <laughs> podcast. So I guess you should. Thankfully, that was at the end of the show. Though. Yeah, it was at the end of the show. But um, <laughs> I guess the first thing you wanted to confront me on was uh, calling you a, a liberal. Yeah, uh, a typical liberal at that. You were on uh, Mr. Sue, uh, his podcast there. Um, which was really cool. I, I, I got to give him a shout out. I think he did us justice. He, he really gave you a lot of time to speak and, and to, you know, air out some opinions and, 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 you know, things like that. So shout out to you, Mr. Sue. Um, but uh, when you were describing, uh, you know, the show and, and specifically me, you were like, oh yeah, you know, he's like a typical New York liberal. And I, I, I was triggered by it. And then <laughs> I responded to uh, the tweet and he, and he called me out for being a, a typical liberal and, and, trying to start beef on <laughs> Twitter over <laughs> over something stupid like that. Yeah, I don't think that you are a typical liberal in hindsight. I think we just both come from very different paths politically. Mm-hmm. Um so we we just we just had a different ride, but we we we're somewhere close together in our in our Yeah, we're, we're definitely towards the center, I would say. Yeah, you're more of a you can, like your political path came from the left and my political path came from the right. Right. I think that I don't, I mean, as Darren Carl, Darren Carlin calls himself, calls himself a political Martian. And I kind of like say the same thing, but I definitely, there's definitely a major uh, conservative tone to the way I think. And, and um, there's a lot of things from libertarianism and that I, that I kind of, uh, that I'm very attracted to. Um, I mean, you know what I, you say that, but you know, I think as you know, just knowing you uh, for you know all these years now, and, and obviously from doing the show, you know, I, I don't think that you're as conservative as you make yourself out to be. Yeah, you know, I probably I, don't. I pro- it's probably just I'm used to not st- for a bad thing either. You know, like I'm certainly not calling you a liberal, but um, it, I think that uh, you know we're we're typical millennials. If we're anything, we don't like labels, and if we have to give a label, we try our best to approximate it. And I think that's why you fall under like libertarian or what's the other word that you call yourself? Paleo conservative. Um, I don't have any neat words for what I believe that I am just yet. So I'll, I'll stick with the typical liberal for now <laughs> until I can find a better term. <laughs> I don't share, I don't share that many of my like ultra conservative thoughts on this, um, on this podcast to be completely yeah, f- honest. Fair enough. <laughs> that, <that's laughs> you don't want to alienate anybody yet. Not because I'm scared of alienating people, but it's just, I feel like there's a venue of it and I, you guys aren't tuning in to hear my fucking thoughts on some, on specific topics that you don't, or not tuning in to listen to. So I don't share them. My favorite writers are conservative or no, actually no, that's a complete lie. My favorite writers aren't conservative necessarily. My favorite writer is a conservative named Thomas Sowell. So other than that though, I'm actually not really a big fan of many conservative writers besides Thomas Sowell, but he's probably my favorite writer. Um, I'm also, I also really like, um, on the libertarian side, I'm a big fan of Rothbard. Rothbard. Um, I'm a big, I, I kind of got my first taste of real political um, literature uh, from Ayn Rand. So I, I, Ayn Rand. Yeah. Yeah. I considered myself, I considered myself an objectivist for a while, but I kind of grew out of that and, and, and adopted more libertarian philosophy rather than object, objectivist philosophy. 
But I mean, you can call me whatever you want. I don't, you can call me a shithead as far as I care. Like I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the, con- most of the people I follow though, who, I, who, uh, actually I'm pretty split. There's some people on the left I follow too, but a lot of the people who I follow, um, media wise pol- in the political circle are libertarians. Like I'm a big fan of, uh, Dave Smith. I'm a big fan of, uh, Michael Malice and, uh, Tom Woods and guys like that and Ron Paul, obviously. So I kind of just like fall into that category, but like, I'm definitely not the guy to go and debate Austrian economics. Like yeah. I'm, just, I'm just not that guy. <laughs> <gonna> show, yeah. <laughs> like you don't, you don't want me to debate Austrian economics. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a bad name. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for, for me, you're, you're obviously much better read than I am. Um, so I won't rattle off like, names of, of writers that, that uh, political writers that I, that I care very much for. But for me, what I, what I try to do is expose myself to as many spheres of influence as possible. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, but I'm a big Redditor and I like to make sure that I subscribe to, you know, subreddits of different political ideologies. So the basic ones are like our liberal, our conservative, our uh, libertarian. And what I try to gather from it is, you know, the nuggets of truth that are present among all of them. And I try to make determinations on my own. And, and that's why I think I, I tend to shy away from, you know, a lot of these labels because there isn't a label that I feel super confident that describes me, right? Or at least I haven't found one yet, you know? And uh, I kind of like not having one or, or not, you know, um, checking off that box, you know, because it, it, it gives me an opportunity to be open to hearing uh, political ideologies from lots of different sides because I don't have a camp that I can immediately retreat to or I don't have a, a bubble that I can, you know, live in. Uh, so I think that's, that's like my angle. Uh, and that's probably why I come closer to the center, especially from, you know, uh, coming from far from the left, you know, uh, because I, I see truths in, in a lot of ideologies and I, I don't think it's fair to, uh, um, to pin myself down to any one of them. Well, you want to be careful never to fall into an echo chamber um, because when you're in an echo chamber, a lot of what you talk about just eventually becomes mantra and then it becomes dogma. Right. So that's why I'm careful about getting myself into an echo chamber. And I'm actually really happy because um, like when talking to people who listen to the show and seeing reviews and stuff like that, Right. It's pretty diverse politically. Um, I think so too, yeah. There's been a lot of guys, um, a lot of libertarians listen to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, a lot of of leftists listen to it as well. So, you know, I'm sure that if you put both two sides of the the people who listen to this show into a room, they'd probably not agree on 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 much but i think when it comes except to the fact touch, that bro history is the shit <laughs> yeah except the fact that bro history is the shit and, yeah <laughs> um, they probably agree generally on our foreign policy stances i, I think so too yeah otherwise they wouldn't listen <laughs> uh, otherwise they'd probably turn us off by now yeah. But speaking of foreign policy, uh, we, we did have a topic today. <laughs> yeah we did have a topic we wanted to speak about um japan um I mentioned that we were working on some podcasts. One of them was going to be about Japan and we wanted to, I guess I don't want to, I wouldn't call this a follow follow up episode to the one that we did kind of like the casual episode we did. We were, we did about uh, the Japanese empire, which was more of just kind of like a chit chat than a podcast, like an informative podcast. Um, but 
it's been interesting over the past couple of, I would say maybe the past two decades, Mm -hmm. Japan has obviously, I'm I'm sure most people who are listening are aware that we were at war with Japan once and Japan was essentially, you know, leveled into for all intents and purposes, all their cities were destroyed um, and their government was shattered and uh, the U S went ahead and and they drew a, a new constitution for them. Um, in 1945, and I think it was ratified in 1947. And that new constitution had a specific charter. Um, it, it was a peace charter. And um, in Article 9 of that charter, it said that Japan um, would, I'll, I'll just quote it, it said, um, Article 9 says that Japan renounces war and use of force as means of settling international disputes and bars it from maintaining a military force. So over the past I would say 20 years, this may go back even a little bit further than this. Um, Japan has actually been building up its military quite a bit. They're actually a quite yep. formidable force. Oh yeah. Uh, when, when compared to other countries. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know if you could, if you can get, give a little bit more context into where they stand among the world as far as military power. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I'd love to talk about where they are, you know, currently in a moment. I think it's still really, really important to harp on this, um, on this charter, you know, from, from article nine in chapter two of their constitution, because, you know, they basically said, uh, you know, in the next line that, that, uh, that comes after the one that you quoted, it says in order to accomplish the aim of, of the preceding paragraph, the one that you talked about land, sea and air forces, as well as other war potential will never be maintained, right? And I think that's super, super important because clearly they're not following that, right? Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. It's just like interesting context, right? So we start off, you know, it's it's 1945 and, uh, you know, General uh, Douglas MacArthur, you know, accepts the unconditional surrender of the Japanese armed forces. And he did so on the deck of the USS Missouri. That was like September or something like that. Um, and, you know, the, the, the background for when they, they wrote this constitution was, we just got wrecked by the United States. And, you know, the conditions of surrender maintained that they, you know, if we're going to let you chill and be your own thing, uh, you're not going to cause any trouble around the world anymore. So part of that has to be that you, you just don't have a military and, and we'll, we'll take care of it. You know, we'll, we'll take care of you if, if you know, shit hits the fan. But um, there have been some uh, political, you know, legal uh, uh, readings of their, of their own constitution that allows for self-defense forces, right? So I think the, the, the kind of happy medium was, you know, in, in about 1950, they said, all right, well, we can't just like completely rely on you know, outside forces for self-defense, like we still need to be able to, to defend ourselves if someone, in, you know, tries to invade us, for example. Uh, you know, just it's, it doesn't make any sense not to have any defense at all, right? Um, and so right now, uh, Japan is allowed uh, uh, JITAI, uh, which is the uh, Japan Self-Defense Forces or the JSDF, um, not to be uh, confused with the SDF, which is uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces there. Um, and that's comprised of, uh, I think, three major branches. So we have the Air SDF, the Maritime SDF, and the Ground SDF. Uh, and uh, technically speaking, legally speaking, they can't call them 
land, sea, and air force uh, because Article 9 specifically prohibits them from using military forces. But because they called it self-defense forces, like a lot of people are arguing that, um, that basically it's cool. But some people on the other side say that actually, no, that's a real military organization and, you know, it's unconstitutional. Uh, obviously, the, the Japanese government thinks differently, um, which is why, you know, we're, we're getting to where we are now. So Japan's uh, self-defense forces uh, makeup um, is pretty straightforward. They've also got a commander in chief right now. That's the prime minister, Shinzo Abe. Uh, but they also have a minister of defense, uh, Takeshi Iwaya. Um, and their Joint Chief of Staff, um, Koji Yamazaki. Um, so important, I want to underscore that Minister of Defense position. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, um, but that's that's pretty important. Uh, their military is just like any other Western-style military. 18 to 32 is eligible for enlistment. Um, they have about 250,000 active personnel and about 63,000 uh, reservists. Um, and they spend quite a bit of money. Uh, so their budget right now is about um, like $50 uh, uh, billion dollars US. Uh, so they're ranked like eighth or ninth uh, in the world for military expenditure, which is huge, right? Especially for a country that says that they won't have a military in their constitution. Um, of course, that's kind of an insignificant portion of their GDP. It's like 0.9%, um, which isn't very much at all. Uh, it's not even a full percent. Um, so that's what we got going on right now. I think it's important to kind of figure out like how is it that we got there. Um, so do you have any questions before I kind of move on about like the makeup of Japan self-defense forces right now or? Um, yeah, I think another thing that they do as well is that uh, they also act as like um, disaster relief and Coast Guard work and stuff like that. Like yep. they, do they do a lot of humanitarian border, work. Border right. control, things like that. So it's like an all-in-purpose type thing they do they do pretty much everything that's related to armed forces right so they were super active for example during the uh fukushima um uh nuclear meltdown you know uh that that followed the tsunami um and they've been deployed all over the world for different humanitarian uh reasons um but a lot of uh, a lot of their missions are changing. So where where I really want to start is like like 2001, you know, because this is like the uh, for for modern geopolitics. I think 2001 is like kind of a, a big starting point, and that's with um, you know obviously 9/11. But in 2001, the they had an anti-terrorism special measure law that was passed, um, and basically what it said was that the JSDF uh, is allowed to. Um, to uh, engage in international efforts to basically stop terrorism, right? Uh, and that's big uh, because previously Japan's policy was like complete non-interventionism, non-involvement, right? They're still pretty uh, much non-intervention when it comes to, I guess, the foreign escapades that the U.S. is involved in. That's um, uh, changing a little bit. Um, and, and I'll point out a, a couple of examples. So, for example, um, well, I'll get there. So 2006, uh, I think this is a big one. I mentioned this earlier about the Minister of Defense. But so previously, Japan's um, military was uh, a defense agency. It's, you know, it's effectively was the same thing as it is now. But they raised the uh, kind of the status of their, of their military um, to being led by like a cabinet level ministry of defense, right? I think that's important. I mean, it, it, 
effectively it doesn't do very much, but what it says is they're putting their military in a high position of power, right? Um, not, of course, above the, the power of the government, but um, what they're saying is like, we recognize this is a big deal. This is important. We want to appoint cabinet uh, members to this particular ministry. Um, I think that's kind of where it all started escalating a little bit because now they're, you know, in the limelight, right there. It's official. Uh, 2007, just a year later, um, uh, the Japan Self-Defense Forces decided that they're no longer solely defensive. Um, so uh, they can start uh, dispatching their ships specifically. They've, they've been moving their ships around uh, um, uh, to stop things like piracy, right? Uh, and like whaling and shit like that. But piracy is the big one. Um, so their first post-war um, like uh, uh, overseas um, uh, base, uh, they have a base in Djibouti in Somalia, um, which is interesting. Uh, and they were like literally fight, actively fighting pirates in, in the sea. Um, so that's, I mean, pirates weren't bothering them particularly, but you know, they're doing their thing. Um, and then in 2007, uh, same year, uh, uh, the prime minister basically said, uh, constitution doesn't actually say that we can't have nukes as long as we're like being like nice about it and they're only like tactical weapons and we're not trying to attack people. So I actually don't know if they have nukes. Pretty sure they don't, but their current prime minister was like, yeah, we could probably get those. Like we, we should be able to have those. So I think we're, that that's huge, right? They're moving the goalposts. Like these are, this is the only country in the world that's ever been like nuked. <laughs> and now they're saying, yeah, yeah, we could probably have a few nukes as long as they're small ones, like little baby ones. What I can imagine, uh, they don't have nukes right now. The Japanese public is pretty is pretty against nukes. Just having experience uh, firsthand, <laughs> yeah. going yeah. through what a nuclear atomic bomb mm-hmm. feels like. Uh, I mean, look what happened to them after after they got nuked. Um, look at their television. Yeah, for example. Yeah, it, seriously. It, and, yeah, you have to be nuked to think of Pokemon and Mario. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like giant robots and shit like and that. And dragon and tentacle porn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, the absurd really prank crazy. shows that they have as well. Uh, and their game shows are so fly. I love their random ass game shows that make no sense. Um, yeah, they're ran- yeah, they make absolutely no sense. And um, their prank shows are so mean-spirited and funny that I just, <laughs> yeah. I saw, I saw a, prank sh- a Japanese prank show where they had this guy in a business meeting and they pretended like there was a sniper in the other building and, and, the, and all of his business associates are getting shot and like blood was coming from their suit and everyone's just <laughs> laughing as this guy is about to have a heart attack. I felt like, Oh my God, felt bad for him. And I was like, this guy's having a heart attack right now. And his friends and family are in the other room, like laughing at this. All right. Um, all right. I wanted to make a topic. <laughs> I wanted to make a point. So, um, as for Somalia, I'm just speculating off this. I could be totally wrong, but I, my head jumps to uh, their military presence and in, in the Horn of Africa would be to uh, making sure that they could should uh, that they could and should secure shipping lanes um, in those. Oh yeah, absolutely, ab- absolutely. But it's it's no longer a defensive posture. Like they're offensively speaking pirates. You know, like they're not supporting shipping lanes by like following you know uh, big ships and and making sure nobody fucks with them they're like going out and finding them and like you know 
doing shit. So that's that's pretty interesting. So 2015, uh, Japan's national diet enacted um, kind of like a, a bunch of military legislation, um, and what it boils it was a bunch of different small things, but what it basically boils down to is um, that Japan has the ability to, and I'm going to try and quote this self. Um, it allows Japan's self-defense forces to collectively self-defense of allies in combat for the first time under its constitution. So what it means is that if their allies are being attacked, they can self-defend alongside their allies. And that's different from uh, the original charter, which was we won't attack anyone unprovoked. Now they're saying, hey, if our allies get uh, provoked, then we'll jump in. And I think what they were trying to say was that you know, uh, by not defending or like supporting, you know, allies, like for example, the U S um, then Japan would be at a weakened self-defense state because then they wouldn't have the capacity to defend, defend Japan. So they're totally cool with like uh, defending military, you know, U S military bases within Japan, but also just collectively self-defend all over the world, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, very, very recently, I think, uh, you know, we've been ramping up with Japan too. So, um, in 2018, we did the biggest military exercise, uh, in Japan. Uh, and that was in October. So not too long ago, just a couple months, it had 47,000 servicemen, uh, servicemen and women, um, and 10,000 from the U S. Uh, so we're talking about like almost 60,000 people. Uh, and they did, you know, Navy moves, uh, uh, air combat, uh, um, ballistic missile defense stuff. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, this was a huge, huge military exercise. Um, you know, if you're interested more in military exercises, you could probably listen to the uh, military exercise that we did uh, back in 2002 against Iran. We did an episode on that one, but um, that's huge. I mean, it's not just Japan doing these things uh, internally. We're also promoting them, right? We're saying, hey, cool, like, you know, let's let's train up together. Let's do these giant war games. Let's do these exercises. Let's make sure that you're propped up well against threats like North Korea or like uh, China or, you know, to a certain extent, Russia. Um, and uh, I think that's uh, super, super important. And, and now we're, we're at this point where, um, and this is kind of like the, the topic that I'm super excited to talk about was, you know, uh, Japan's 2019 midterm defense review uh, basically said like, hey, we're going to, we're going to start building our own stealth like sixth generation stealth fighters. Uh, and that's crazy. It, it just, and just to go back, like, don't you think a lot of this has to do with just uh, thumb, uh, you know, thumbing China at the nose or thumbing the nose of China or. Yeah. I mean, I think some of that's definitely because, true. because the pretext, the pretext of a lot of this defense spending over the past, you know, two decades, three uh, has been uh, the threat of North Korea. Um, yeah. Now it seems that was the obvious one, and now it's that, that, that's that, that's that's the obvious one. But mm-hmm. you know, we've had multiple episodes about that, um, about North Korea, it's actual threat. Oh, it's fucking siren, do you hear that? No, all right, I'll just keep on going. Um, we've had multiple episodes about the North Korean threat and stuff, and um, I mean, it, it does seem like things are gradually dying down there. I don't think they're going to be a threat for, for decades to come. Um, yeah, so North Korea is is not going to be a viable justification to ramp up their military spending for long. And I think I, I suspect a lot of it has been um, due to China and China has been increasingly aggressive in the South China Sea. That's right. And um, 
I think that they want to present themselves as someone who will stand up to the bully state China, specifically those countries in like um, the South Pacific, such as, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, countries like that. Right. Because those countries definitely don't have a chance, you know, <laughs> like obviously those countries don't have a chance. So it's like Japan is. Uh, they're stepping up. They're, they're, they're stepping up saying that we can stand up to the big bad bully. And, and a lot of it has to do with, I, I think that they just want to be able to put themselves in a position for better trade deals and things like that. Right, right. There's, there's an economic incentive there too. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, they don't want to get pushed around. I get that. I, I totally understand. Um, I, I don't, I think it's unfortunate that they, um, the context made sense uh, for when they drafted their, their, um, their constitution, you know, coming off of World War II and the aggression that they that they had during that war, like it was legitimate. You know, uh, it it made sense that that their new constitution would have, you know, been drafted around peace and and uh, and and not maintaining a military force. But um, at this juncture, we kind of need Japan to step up. You know, like yeah, U.S. military forces are out there, and and we've got the best navy in the world, and you know, some of the best military tech and stuff like that, but we still need people in the region to, to like police their own damn region, you know? So I don't know. I'm split on this. I don't, I, I don't love, you know, uh, military posturing, but at the same time, I totally respect Japan's, you know, uh, intentions of, of just, you know, standing up to bullies when bullies are around, you know? Well, it's not like the Japanese empire is coming back and they're going to start <laughs> brutally invading, uh, you know, Manchuria and, and yeah. other countries in the Pacific. Like, I don't see foresee that happening anytime soon. Yeah, well, I also the culture in J- Japan, possible, changed, you know? <laughs> the culture in Japan is very different than it was during World War II. Right. Very um, it, it's very much. I'm no expert on Japanese culture. I do. I do play the occasional video game every once in a while, but it doesn't make <laughs> me. It doesn't make me an expert on Japanese culture. There's a lot of people like that who. Um, who I think they like a bunch of weebs. <laughs> yeah. They like love anime so much that they're like, Ooh, eat that meat. Um, I'm an expert on Japanese culture. I like to live the way of Naruto. Um, what's the, that's the most famous it's, one, right? Naruto. Oh, <laughs> Naruto. <laughs> Only you would know. Uh, I like Western fantasy. Um, actually there are some animes I like. I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, the culture in Japan has largely changed. Like from my perception, it's largely just, just changed over the years. From what I've heard from other people who live in Japan, um, that Japanese society is largely apolitical, but at the same time, they're super supportive of, um, the, of, of the, I mean, they're most of Japan is very supportive of the military, mm-hmm. but then again, I don't think they really think about it that much, but I could be wrong. I got to get some more Japanese, Japanese. We've never had a Japanese expert on this show. I'll find one. Brian, Brian Dawson's a Japanese expert. I'll ask him. Yeah. 
Um, he lives in Japan. He, he could he could speak to this stuff really well. Um, go on about the the stealth fighter. Sorry, I lost. I took us off. Took a round. No, that's totally fine. I, I obviously I, I nerd out about military tech and uh, just recently uh, got an article um, that uh, had said that Japan's working on some six gen fighters. Uh, a little bit of context for this for those folks that that haven't listened to our episode on the F-35. So the F-35 is a fifth generation uh, stealth fighter. And uh, that's important because, you know, the first thing that jumps out of your mind is like, what is this, iPhones? Like, you know, they're coming out with a new generation every year. Like, this is crazy, right? Um, But actually, when I read into the article, the the move makes a whole lot of sense, right? Um, As we know, the F-35 kind of leaves some stuff to be desired right specifically for japan right you mean you mean japan doesn't want to get kamikazes <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to uh, berate their enemies with f-35 kamikazes no no, <laughs> no. that's what we got right now <laughs> uh <laughs> no, no comment um so no it's important for japan because uh we can bitch all we want about F-35s, about its strengths and its weaknesses, but at the end of the day, Japan just doesn't want them, right? I mean, they have a few, and they're going to buy a few more, but um, they don't want them. The, the reason why they don't want them is the, you know, the bullies in the region have better tech, and they're an island nation, and uh, their charter is for self-defense, um, and the F-35 is a is an attacker, right? It's an FA, right? It's a, it's a, it's a airplane that is capable of dogfighting, you know, fighting other uh, uh, planes in the sky. Uh, but really, it's 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 intention, it's intended use is like sit back in, you know, uh, beyond uh, the visual range and fire a couple missiles and 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 fire them against uh, both air targets and especially ground targets and and sea targets. So, so the F-35 is a, it's a strike, uh, like an attack vehicle, right? It's, it's intended to, to fly stealthily, not be seen, network with other uh, uh, airplanes uh, and other ground-based radar stuff so that, uh, so that we can attack things actively, like proactively. Um, but that doesn't really help them very much when Russia sends over you know, some Sukhois or China sends over the Sukhoi clones, the, the Chengdong J-20s or whatever. You know, it doesn't help them because those those planes are air superiority planes, right? They will dominate things in the sky, and they have some self, you know, capabilities. Well, what Japan really wanted was the F twenty two. The F twenty two Raptor is a badass plane, and it is far and beyond more agile, more you know, capable in air to air combat than the F thirty five ever will be. Um, and that's important, right? That they want to be able to defend themselves and their airspace if there's a threat from the sky. Um, and I think Japan just had enough of this F-35 nonsense and we're like, you know what, fuck it. We're just going to start building uh, sixth generation. So they, they're jumping a generation. They're like, forget it. You know, we'll buy a couple F-35s just because, you know, uh, because they're useful in certain situations, but like we have to build something else. Um, they that's super, super interesting because it is going to be a very expensive project. Um, and they won't even be flying around until 2030. And that's the important part. They're getting, they're getting the jump on the sixth generation now. Um, 
because they they understand that by the time they need the sixth generation fighters, it'll already be too late to start working on one. And they, I guess they're not fully confident that the United States is going to deliver on that. What is a what is a sixth the difference between a sixth generation fighter and a fifth generation fighter? There's people who claim that there's no such thing as a fifth generation uh, fighter. I mean, yeah, that that's the controversy um, floating around. Um, the the generations aren't super clearly defined, especially the later generations. Um, the early generations were like we talked about this in the F thirty five program. Um, you know, the early generations were like going from a propeller airplane to like a jet airplane. And then once we had jet airplanes, there was like going from a jet airplane to one that can fly supersonic, meaning faster than the speed of sound. Right. And then there was a couple of other iterations in between. Uh, it lands us firmly right now in the spot where we're at on fifth generation fighters, which is uh, supersonic, super cruising uh, fighter airplane that also has stealth capability and a bunch of like, uh, um, technology around uh, uh, networking with other uh, planes. Now, I guess the the idea would be that the sixth generation fighter would probably be like if we're talking about iPhones. You know, if this is the iPhone 10, then if the fifth generation plane is the iPhone 10, then the sixth generation is probably going to be the iPhone 10s. Not a bunch of like you know giant improvements. Um, no, no enormous uh, uh, leaps and bounds ahead, but definitely better, uh, uh, more equipped for future fighting. And I think, you know, we're not really going to find out until, um, I think it's November of this year, uh, when Japan, uh, does the budgeting for it and also specifies what the requirements will be. So we'll have to follow up with this later in the year, um, to see exactly what they, what they decide and determine as what a sixth generation fighter should look like and how it should operate and, and what they're, you know, what they need. Um, but this is important. Uh, so their Mitsubishi is going to be building it. Right. Um, I thought they were only good for the cars and, and the, <laughs> and the microwaves and shit, but, uh, evidently they're, uh, also still making airplanes. Uh, and this is going to be called the Mitsubishi F3 air superiority stealth fighter. Um, but I'm sure in the native Japanese is probably much cooler and longer. <laughs> the robot dick. <laughs> The Shining Sun Ultimate Battle Airplane Weapon of the Future. <laughs> Being named is like Hokorakte. Oh, Toki. But yeah, so they're, they're building it on, on the, on the um, they had this one project, the Shinshin X2, uh, which was basically just a demonstration plane um, for air superiority. I think some of the cool features that they hope to have on it um, is obviously stealth capability, right? They want to make sure that it's, you know, invisible uh, to radar or very close to it. The uh, Shinshin X2 has a radar cross-section uh, the size of a giant beetle. I read that somewhere. Um, again, radar cross-section being how large the object appears in radar when it's picked up by radar. So really big object, you know, it's going to set off a whole lot of alarms, an object the size of a beetle, they're probably not even going to notice it, right? Um, I mean, they're definitely not going to notice it, you know? Uh, so that's going to be an important uh, portion of it. Um, but they're also building uh, their engines to be uh, thrust vectoring. What thrust vectoring is, is so they're, they're, if you look at an airplane, and I'm describing it like I would, how I would describe it to my five-year-old self, 
you know the part where the flames come out in the back of the jet, right, or that, that pushes it forward? Well, uh, it would have two, two independently moving uh, uh, nozzles where the, where the thrust would come out. And thrust vectoring means that they can manipulate the nozzles so that it can do crazy shit like backflips in the sky. So it's much more agile and stuff like that. Potentially, you know, it could help with, uh, you know, uh, 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 jump jetting, right? Like just coming off the ground um, from a stationary position or making use of a shorter runway uh, to take off. Um, and what's super interesting about that is that they're building these uh, thrust vectoring systems to be smaller um, than the like the current F-22s or the current F-2. Um, but smaller isn't necessarily worse. Uh, smaller just means they have more room for weapons inside, right? Uh, so that, that means they'll, they'll be able to carry much more ordnance, which makes them much more capable in the sky. Uh, but they're going to try to figure out a way so that they don't uh, lack in power output so that they can still fly with the best of them. Um, I'm interested. I want to I know, you know, in, in, in late, later this year, like, I would love to see if they, you know, put out a statement on like how fast they want these things to fly or like how far they can cruise or, um, you know, without refueling or, you know, how much, how many weapons they, they need it to, to hold. I'm, I'm, I'm nerding out a little bit about it. I think it's going to, it's definitely going to spank the F-35. If I know anything about the Japanese, they know, <laughs> they know what they want and they're probably going to build a Gundam for all I know. Um, <laughs> if, if it's anything like a Toyota truck, <laughs> it'll be built to last, right? It will be built to last forever and it will yeah. get in the hands of jihadist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's follow up on this topic. All right. Thanks everyone for listening today. Um, make sure you like and subscribe rate and review all that good stuff. And, uh, we will see you soon. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.